0: KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.
1: Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Thursday. May 27th, outdoor dining has a future in San Diego. More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. A gunman opened fire at a San Jose rail yard on Wednesday, killing at least nine people before taking his own life. It comes amid a sharp increase in mass killings as the nation emerges from coronavirus restrictions. The attacker was identified as an employee of the rail yard. A motive is still unknown. A new report regarding the recall election for Governor Gavin Newsom shows voter support for the governor is unchanged. The Public Policy Institute of California released the report on Tuesday. 57 percent oppose removing Newsom, 40 percent of voters favor removal, and 3 percent unsure. PPIC President Mark Baldessari says the results are clearly driven by a large partisan divide in the state that favors Newsom. A passenger attacked a flight attendant on a San Diego-bound flight earlier this week. Now, unruly passengers on aircraft can expect to face fines of up to $35,000 and jail time. Here's Sarah Nelson, president of the Flight Attendants Association. Flight attendants are out on the front lines right now, and some are actually punching bags for the public, and it is unacceptable. Nelson says flight attendants have been quitting their jobs because of the rise in threats and assaults from the public. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need.
2: Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover,
1: outdoor dining is here to stay in San Diego. What started as a lifeline for restaurants during the pandemic has simply become a popular dining option. However, these hot new dining areas used to be parking spots. KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen has this look at how COVID-19 has added another layer to the long-running argument over how parking should be prioritized in city planning.
3: So this was a parking space um, prior to the pandemic.
4: Tammy Peel walks me through the patio dining space at her North Park restaurant, One Door North.
3: Once we closed, excuse me, indoor dining, um, we decided to make this an outdoor space for people to enjoy and, you know, we could continue
4: to be open. This lot used to provide 12 parking spaces for employees' cars. Now it can accommodate up to 80 paying customers. Peel also put tables and chairs on four street parking spaces. She says without converting parking to dining space, she likely would have gone out of business.
3: We really wanted to do everything that we could to keep our employees employed. And this allowed us to limp along so that we could continue um, our business, you know, as things began to open up even more.
4: Parking is a sensitive subject in North Park. In 2019, the city proposed removing street parking to create protected bike lanes. A group called Save 30th Street Parking sued the city to stop the project. A judge allowed it to proceed anyway, but the controversy underscores how passionate some San Diegans are about parking. Before the pandemic, Peel says employees would complain about trouble finding a parking spot. But now, even with less parking available...
3: I don't think I've heard about a parking complaint since we've reopened and everybody has been back to working consistently. They've really found ways to accommodate and that can can include biking to work.
4: Over the years, businesses and residents have fought hard for parking in virtually every San Diego neighborhood. But when the city council voted to extend outdoor dining permits last week, No one called into the meeting to ask for their parking spaces back.
0: There is kind of this misconception that if parking in front of my store, if I don't have that space, I'm gonna be losing business.
4: Michael Trimble is executive director of the Gaslamp Quarter Association. For the past year, the city has been closing Fifth Avenue to cars in the afternoons and evenings. Trimble says rather than creating problems, the change has solved them. It's more walkable, there's no double parking, and the police and fire departments can get to emergencies faster.
0: The loss of parking really has not been a real issue because there is close to 3,000 spots within walking distance
4: of the Gaslamp Quarter. The Gaslamp Quarter Association has been planning for a fully pedestrianized 5th Avenue promenade for years. Originally, city officials thought it would cost $40 million and take up to eight years to get done. But once again, COVID-19 forced them to think differently.
0: Everyone got the outdoor dining. They got the exposure to eat on the street. We got to close the street and show them that it really does work and the public wants it. And really it sped up the project, I would say, by at least five years.
4: But while the city works to reclaim the gas lamp quarter for pedestrians, some fear other neighborhoods will be left behind. We, we smoke everything with our with our oak, and this is a brisket that we're cooking. Carlos Stance is the owner of Bowlegged Barbecue in the Mount Hope neighborhood. He also turned his back parking lot into a dining space, and it's been a huge success. And this kind of kind of goes with the barbecue flavor in the backyard and we wanted to have an experience so when you're outside, you hear the good music and have a good atmosphere for eating your food. Still, this part of Market Street isn't pedestrian-friendly. Cars go too fast, and there aren't enough trees or crosswalks. Stance came up with his own resources to keep his business afloat during the pandemic, but he'd love to see the city invest in Mount Hope like it has in North Park and the Gaslamp. We're paying our sales taxes, we're paying our you know, payroll taxes, we're, we're putting young people to work. Uh, so I think it's important for us, to, for the longevity, to have that kind of support. It would be welcome. Most restaurants have had their outdoor dining permits extended to July 2022. In the meantime, the city is working to make the program permanent.
1: And that was KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. It's been nearly a month now since a crippling ransomware attack hit Scripps Health, one of San Diego's largest healthcare providers. And even now, it's still unclear if or when systems will be fully restored. KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman has the latest.
0: Patients' medical history can be viewed electronically again, and while officials say progress is being made, there's still a lot we don't know, and some systems are still down. Scripps officials don't know if any personal patient data has been compromised. A statement on their website says the investigation into the cyber attack is still ongoing, now nearly four weeks in. In a letter to patients this week, Scripps CEO Chris Van Gorder called the attack ransomware. That's where hackers could be holding data in exchange for payment. The last few weeks have been difficult for patients with appointments, blood work, and other procedures being rescheduled or outsourced officials say they realize that openly sharing more information is putting them at an increased risk. Van Gorder is telling patients that other attackers are sending scam communications to the healthcare giant. Scripps says they are supporting a federal law enforcement investigation and while hospitals and urgent care centers are still open and taking appointments, teams are still working to fully restore systems. Van Gorder says they have, quote, thorough backups of data and hope to have electronic health records fully up by the end of this week. The last few weeks, patients have been unable to access their health care information online and once systems go fully live again, there will be a 14-day grace period to pay any outstanding bills. Scripts officials say those who need care should not hesitate to come in for their treatments. They say once the investigation is completed into this cyber attack, if any personal data has been compromised, they will reach out directly to those patients.
1: And that was KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman. The city of Chula Vista has voted to permanently remove the Christopher Columbus statue at Discovery Park. KPBS's Alexandra Rangel was at the statue site and has more on what locals are hoping comes from the historic vote the christopher columbus
5: statue that was once mounted on top of this brick pedestal has been sitting in storage for almost a year now and after much deliberation and community input the chula vista city council has decided that the statue won't be coming back to discovery park stains of red paint can still be seen on the pavement where the statue once stood serving as a reminder of the vandalism and protests that led to the statue's removal. Elena Iscali, who grew up playing softball at Discovery Park, was one of the dozens of people who spoke at Tuesday's city council meeting. I would pass the Columbus statue multiple times a week, literally looking up to a man who had committed genocide to people just like me. The council voted four to one to get rid of the statue And declared october 12 indigenous peoples day in chula vista the city's human relations commission played a big role in advocating for the removal of the statue saying it did not represent the people or the values of chula vista commission member ricardo medina says the statue should be replaced with a marker
6: marking the dates that the community came together in the name of justice in the name of truth and reconciliation Um, to to recreate reconceptualize the park.
5: The commission will be in charge of developing a task force to help remain and transform the park into something that unifies the community. Councilman John McCann was the single no vote, adding he wasn't in favor of changing the name of the park, but Medina finds the name problematic.
6: It perpetuates this this concept of discovery that there was nobody here. Um, There was nobody that occupied these lands when Columbus got here.
1: And that reporting from KPBS's Alexandra Ronhell. In L.A. County, seniors are largely vaccinated. Young adults now make up the greatest share of people in the hospital with COVID-19. KPCC's Jackie Fortier has more.
6: Over the past six weeks, there have been more 30 to 49-year-olds hospitalized with the coronavirus than any other age group. It's a big change from earlier in the pandemic, when those who became sick enough for emergency care skewed older. L.A. County Health Director Barbara Ferrer said older adults are protected because so many of them are vaccinated, and young children may be protected by mask wearing at schools. But
7: people in the middle group, many of
1: them are workers and people responsible for the care of others others are not as well protected by either of these factors and if they're not vaccinated they are highly likely to end up with a COVID infection and unfortunately disproportionately likely to end up in the hospitals.
6: Pereira said almost all the people in the hospital with COVID-19 have not been vaccinated. There's been a steep drop-off in adults getting their first dose and half of eligible people in LA County are not vaccinated. More than 700 pharmacies, clinics, community sites, and hospitals offered the free vaccine to anyone 12 and up.
1: And that was KPCC's Jackie Fortier. Coming up, President Biden asked the intelligent community to report on the origins of the coronavirus within 90 days. We have a conversation with the editor of the California Healthline next, just after the break. While the COVID-19 pandemic has begun to stabilize, many questions on how the virus got started remain unanswered. On Wednesday, President Biden told the intelligence community to report on the origins of the virus within 90 days. It comes as experts are beginning to seriously consider whether the virus was actually a laboratory accident rather than a product of animal-to-human transmission as originally assumed. The laboratory theory is controversial. Originally promoted by the former Trump administration, and it pointed at China's Institute of Virology in Wuhan. Arthur Allen is the editor of the California Healthline. He spoke to Midday Edition host Jade Hindman. Here's that interview.
6: Now, Arthur, you spoke to Peter Daszak, the only American on a 10-member team that the World Health Organization sent to China this winter to investigate the origins of the virus. He said that while he can't disprove the lab leak theory, he remains unconvinced of it. Uh, Daszak has a long history studying bat coronaviruses. How has that influenced his opinion on the origins of this virus?
7: Well there are some people who feel that he has a conflict of interest and that he shouldn't have participated in this WHO visit to China that occurred during the winter because he didn't really disclose to the world that you know he helped fund this laboratory which is the center of these suspicions that there might have been a leak but in any case he you know has committed a huge amount of his career to investigating these viruses and showing just how dangerous they are and how close they were to sort of jumping over to humans and causing the kind of pandemic that the world has seen. Um, He has said that he doesn't see any evidence that this occurred in the lab in Wuhan that he was working with. I should clarify, he doesn't personally work in the lab, but he thinks that he's satisfied that he has seen enough of their data to be sure that they weren't working on a virus similar to this.
6: The notion that COVID-19 was created in a lab began as speculation. How did this theory emerge, and why have we seen it gain traction in recent months?
7: It emerged initially because of some intelligence reports that uh, people had gotten sick at the Wuhan laboratory, and also just the the fact that this virus was known to be associated with bats, that are uh, often found in caves 600 miles away from Wuhan. So the fact that this laboratory was working with them and was sort of the world's leading laboratory for this kind of research, you know, made people wonder. And then what added to that is the fact that there hasn't been really any evidence found of this sort of missing link between bats carrying hundreds of different coronaviruses, but none that similar to the one to SARS-CoV-2, the one that is, you know, has plagued the world. And so that that missing link and the fact that they've sampled many animals since then and nothing has been found that would indicate that this might have been the means for some kind of virus to go from bats, maybe to an intermediate species or, or directly to people. There's just no evidence of that. And the fact that there's no evidence I think has added to suspicions or to the feeling that really this other hypothesis, which isn't the mainstream, but this hypothesis that it came from the lab sort of has grown or, or the feeling that it needed to be investigated more has grown as the other hypothesis sort of just isn't paying off.
6: A recent U.S. intelligence report confirming the illness of a number of researchers at the Wuhan Institute of Virology contracted COVID-19-like symptoms before the disease was actually reported in the general public has actually raised more questions. How has this news further polarized the debate on COVID's origins?
7: Well, I mean, it's another, it's a its a piece of evidence by no means you know, definitive, but it's Another piece of suggestive evidence that maybe the virus might have jumped and that it was sort of covered up. I've seen people hypothesizing that maybe there was an outbreak. Somebody at the lab got sick and then there were several cases in the community and they thought they had controlled it back in the fall and then it busted out again. And the idea is that this was very embarrassing and that it might have been covered up. I mean, you got to figure there's, if it really is a cover-up of these dimensions, there have to be a lot of people who know about it. I mean, we really are talking about a conspiracy. And I think Dajak feels that he trusts these scientists. He's worked with them for years. He doesn't, and many other virologists that I've spoken with in the U.S., they say these are some of the leading scientists in the world working on viruses and They don't believe that they would just hush something up like this. But on the other hand, China has a different system and you really can't say anything without uh, authorization at this level in China. What's also interesting to me is that, you know, our relationship or the relationships among U.S. scientists and Chinese scientists working in this field were really reduced by the Trump administration. And uh, we went from having 45 public health, U.S. public health service scientists there to 10 during his period in office. And, you know, having fewer people on the ground means you don't pick up as much of the scuttlebutt. I mean, even if people aren't going to directly tell you what's happening, you don't see that they're looking nervous. They're running around. You know, something's going on. And then you ask questions. So we might have been hurt and we, you know, we might have, if indeed, the lab hypothesis is factual, we would have been in a much better position to have found it out if we had, you know, continued to strengthen our presence in China, which was reduced quite a bit during the Trump administration.
6: Earlier this month, a group of scientists asked for the Wuhan Institute of Virology to open its database for more scrutiny. They said no. What other information do scientists need to come to a definitive conclusion to this question?
7: Well, it's difficult because what we're asking or what the people that I've seen are, are you know, so some of these investigators who are scientists um, sort of unofficially working and spreading information on Twitter that they find are saying that they've found things like research papers that show that uh, some Chinese scientists in Wuhan were working with viruses that weren't reported to these international sort of databases where it's customary to report your findings if you're working in genetics or in virology. And so they're saying that the fact that these viruses or virus sequences weren't registered is one thing that leads to to suspicion that uh, they're hiding something and and that's that, you know, this database that they shut down in September might have more clues as to sort of the intermediate species or or the work that was being done at the Wuhan lab that could have led either to the creation of this virus, but more likely just to it's somebody being infected with it in the laboratory and then it leaking. And by leak, we mean somebody got sick and they went out and infected other people.
6: Peter Daszak says he has received threats and lost scientific funding as a result of his work on bad coronaviruses. He says attacking scientists is, quote, shooting the people with the conduit to where the next coronavirus might happen. How has this debate impacted public trust in the scientific community and in government?
7: Trust in science has come under strain during this pandemic. And many of these questions have become so politicized because they're used as political tools because of, you know, all the pressure that people feel under economically and so on because of these public health measures. And I think this lab leak hypothesis, unfortunately, in addition to being, you know, a really important question to answer, has also become a political football
6: You say a lot of scientific conflict over this question is related to a debate over the risks associated with lab experiments involving deadly infectious disease. And just today, the Senate passed amendments to the Endless Frontier Act, which would affect funding for these kinds of experiments. Can you talk about how the roots of this debate are affecting what we're seeing play out now?
7: I mean, there's a number of scientists who are worried about Some of the research that's done with viruses that involves creating sort of hybrids that are always, you know, these are not, nobody's out trying to make monster viruses, but they might create a hybrid in order to test whether a drug will work against a certain type of virus or a certain piece of a virus. But a lot of scientists feel like there hasn't been much that's come out of this kind of research that's been useful and that it's potentially dangerous because of, you know, the kind of uh, nightmare scenario that we're discussing in regard to COVID. So there are a number of scientists who were sort of suspicious of this kind of research. And um, some of them suspect that this kind of research was going on at Wuhan, although not all of them, for many of them, it's still the separate issues, but they have become sort of enmeshed one in another because Some of the same people who were questioning this kind of research are now asking questions about whether this kind of research was being done in Wuhan and whether it might have led to this leak.
1: That was Arthur Allen, editor of the California Healthline. He addressed the enduring theory that COVID-19 began not in the natural environment, but in a lab in Wuhan, China. You heard him speaking with KPBS Midday Edition host Jade Hindman.